Hey there, is the current housing market surge a sign of economic recovery or a potential bubble waiting to burst? I'm Aaron Young, let's find out. Now, streaming right around the world, this is Ticker Today. Hello and welcome. Great to have you with us this Monday. Also this hour, the US Congress averts a partial government shutdown just hours before the deadline. Plus, the rise of classic gaming. Now Atari has a really big announcement for all of us retro gamers. That's coming up. First, though, our top story this hour. The housing market has witnessed a remarkable surge in home sales, driving property prices to unprecedented highs. Despite the ongoing economic challenges, the real estate sector appears to be thriving, leaving experts and homeowners both astonished and also hopeful. Now, over the past year, the real estate landscape's been anything but predictable. The surge in demand, as you see from this chart from the three major cities in Australia, has been met with a limited supply of available homes. Builders have struggled to keep pace with the soaring demand, making the situation even worse. For more, let's bring in Mark Wilde of MW Wealth Management. Mark, great to see you this Monday, of course. Great weekend in footy too. Um, talk to us about the factors that are driving the surge in home sales and prices. The, the incredible run of interest rate increases. So what that normally means is that house prices are going to go down. That's what we all expect. Interest rates are up, affordability is down, we can't borrow as much. So why are property prices surging? So one reason, and this is quite a new phenomenon, is that people are selling their homes because they can't necessarily make up the mortgage repayments to keep their homes. So what typically happens, Aaron, is that when there's an increased volume in sales, that can tend, that, that, that's normally the number one precursor for uh, capital appreciation, which is an odd phenomenon. And I think that's what we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, well, the factors that we're seeing there, you talk about that capital appreciation and that odd phenomenon as well. Uh, this is coming at a time where the Reserve Bank of Australia has been trying to push down inflation. Yet if house prices are starting to go back up again, is it a sign that there might be more interest rates on the way? No, I don't think there'll be more interest rate increases because the Reserve Bank are doing their job. Uh, they've got inflation pretty much in its normal bandwidth. So property is its own subsector that is linked to the G GDP, but mm. not linked to GDP at the same time. So if you look at apartment sales or regional areas, I mean, these subsectors of, say, the Melbourne and Sydney property markets are booming at unprecedented levels just because we have an exodus to an affordable lifestyle. So most people can't afford, you know, the three-bedroom Victorian cottage in a Melbourne or Sydney, so they're forced to go regional or into apartments, and we're seeing these subsector uh, property asset classes absolutely exploding, Aaron. And talk to us about regional as well, these, vari these variations uh, in the housing market's performance. What do you think is the reason for it? Well, because no one can afford to live uh, where they potentially might want to live. Uh, so they, they're forced to go more regional. So they have they might have kids. They might want to be close to a certain school or a hospital, university. So they they choose to go regional because they can get the exact dwelling they want. And if you look at the statistics in some of these regional areas, say there's a lot in Queensland that we've bought uh, property for clients for. I mean, the, the, the growth that they've got over the last 12 months is quite mm. extraordinary. And just like Melbourne and Sydney, the rental market for these regional areas, uh, the, the vacancy rates are less than 0.4%, Aaron, and the, the rents have increased by over 50% over the last couple of years. So 
what do we do? What 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 do the powers to be do about what's happening in Australia? Because the, the, ultimately, the supply and the immigration and the amount of dwellings we need to house all of the people we have here, we just don't have enough, which is what we're seeing. It's weird that it feels like it just suddenly happened, right? It feels like building houses and planning for the future is something that should be done along with the concept of, Im of immigration over a 10 or 15 year forward plan. But COVID seems to have meant that instead of us having a plan, they're scrambling to pay the bills by increasing immigration and then housing almost becomes an afterthought. What about first home buyers at the moment? Because there's still a lot of young people wanting to get into the housing market, looking around saying, it is now like doing yeah. a triple somersault uh, with no legs it's impossible yeah uh, uh yeah so what do we do there so obviously the government are making it a little bit easier saying that you don't have to pay mortgage insurance if you don't have up to a 20 percent deposit i mean that's one factor but i mean as i as i've said to a lot of people in presentations so the mm. probably the best thing you can do you need to use leverage to create wealth so you need to save potentially not for your first home but for an investment and affordable investment property with huge growth characteristics and if you can do that and create wealth over a 10-year period then potentially sell or refinance that property into your main home then and that is probably how you're the only way you're going to get enough space to house you and your fleet to be where you want to be the old fleet mark wild appreciate your time as always thank you <laughs> thanks mate bye all right the U.S. Congress averted a partial government shutdown just hours before the deadline, passing a stopgap measure to keep it running until November 17. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy now facing a possible leadership challenge from party hardliners who were against the short-term funding. The United States Congress has managed to avert another federal government shutdown for now. The bill is passed. As the clock ticked toward the midnight deadline on Saturday, the House and Senate passed a so-called stopgap measure, which will keep the government funded for the next 45 days. The critical moment came when House Speaker Kevin McCarthy denied the demands of his party's hardliners, who wanted to pass a bill in the chamber with only Republican votes. Instead, a bipartisan bill passed with 209 Democrats and 126 Republicans in support. At least one GOP hardliner had said his group could consider removing McCarthy from his role as the House Republican leader over his actions. You know what, if somebody wants to remove because I want to be the adult in the room, go ahead and try. But I think this country is too important. However, McCarthy did cave to pressure from House conservatives to drop funding for Ukraine. Democrats agreed to avoid a shutdown first. The top House Democrat, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, called the bill's passage a win. The American people have won. The extreme MAGA Republicans have lost. He urged Congress to bring back discussions on aid for Ukraine soon. Members of the Senate echoed the sentiment, including top Republican Senator Mitch McConnell. I'm confident the Senate will pass further urgent assistance to Ukraine. An entirely avoidable government shutdown would not just pause our progress on these important priorities, it would actually shut them back. As the bill was sent to the U.S. president to sign into law, Joe Biden also stressed the need to continue supporting Ukraine. But in a statement, he also called its passage good news, saying it was, quote, preventing an unnecessary crisis that would have inflicted needless pain on millions of hardworking Americans. Lawmakers now have the next 45 days to come up with a long-term solution or risk a shutdown again.
We hear a lot of bad news about the environment, but this week's episode of The Great Transformation has some good news for once. Joining me is Professor Tim Harcourt from UTS, the host of The Great Transformation. Great to see you. Big weekend of football, of course, Tim. And uh, this week you've been interviewing Professor Alan Finkel, the former chief scientist of Australia, about the uh, clean energy transition. Uh, talk to us about the show. Yeah, look, Alan Finkel's interview is almost as exciting as the grand finals on the weekend, Aaron, but not not quite. <laughs> Uh, what was what was good is that um, uh, Professor Alan Finkel is, of course, the chief scientist for Australia, and he'd been you know he's been looking at the climate transition for 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 decades now, and I think he came to it uh, uh, from quite a sceptical place some time ago when he took up his brief. But in the interview, in the Great Transformation, he's actually feels he's seen a lot of progress and uh, things going a lot better. Uh, than he had when he first took up the post as chief scientist. So that's sort of good news for, uh, you know, sort of realistic uh, observations of the of the transition. Yeah, I'm keen to get your thoughts. You travel around the, the world a lot, obviously, uh, as the airport economist, and we often hear from politicians saying that Australia is a bit of a dirty word when it comes to uh, being involved in a lot of these global warming meetings and climate change meetings where Australia is seen as not necessarily an advanced economy, but an economy based on exporting raw minerals that add to uh, climate change. What are your thoughts on that? And what was Alan Finkel's thoughts on that too? Yeah, always. A, uh, always I always felt this was a disconnect, Aaron, because um, whenever I've been to uh, China and India and Indonesia, I meet um, Aussie environmental architects and engineers uh, and mining companies doing you know fantastic things in sustainability. So I always thought the actual thing that Australian exporters were doing and what was being reported in Paris or at these various uh, meetings was was quite different. And I think Alan Finkel believes to some extent that's true as well because uh, he is now sort of engaged in the enterprise side of, uh, of of climate innovation, not just the science. And he's now again seeing, uh, you know, Australians at the forefront of, uh, of, of innovation in terms of sustainability. So I think that was quite a revealing uh, part of the interview, I thought, uh, some, of the, some of the learnings of the, the enterprises and the exporters and what they're doing. And when it comes to actually making the transition quicker or slower, you mentioned about how he thought that we are actually making a lot of progress as well. Um, is it economically irresponsible and self-sabotaging, though, for a country like Australia that makes so much of its money that goes towards health and education and all of the things that the population demands from, of course, selling resources to countries like China and India? Is it self-sabotaging to essentially say we need to stop doing that in order for us to be able to meet our commitments? Well, I think it's better to tackle climate change as a rich country than a poor country, Aaron. So I think uh, if, a, if, a, if Australia did some, you know, kamikaze banning of all its fossil fuels, then we'd have no income to make the transition. So I think what Alan Finkel was saying is that there is a transition going on, but we should do it in a position uh, of considerable wealth uh, as an OECD country, uh, we should uh, make sure that we get the energy mix right. And uh, we also should basically understand that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the companies that traditionally have uh, been in rocks and crops and been in traditional sources of energy, they're also the ones leading the charge. I mean, if you look at uh, Guider Bell's, my interview with Guider Bell with Fortescue Future Industries, of mm. course, Twiggy Forrest made his fortune on iron ore, but he's now leading the charge in green hydrogen and some of those uh, some of those types of new energy sources. So I think keeping the mix right is, is the way to go, Aaron. 
All right, Tim Harcourt, of course, you can keep up with the great transformation. Love having the program here on Ticker, 7.30, Tuesday night here on Ticker. Great to see you, Tim. Talk soon. Thanks, Aaron. Good on you. All right. Now, here's a blast from the past. Atari 2600 Plus is the iconic gaming console from the past. It's making a triumphant return to the gaming scene, and it's set its sights on the future through retro gaming. The resurrection of the Atari comes as a response to the growing demand for retro gaming experiences and classic games as well. The newly revamped Atari 2600 Plus will not only feature a sleek, modern design, but also provide compatibility with modern displays and controllers as well. That is a program for now. Thanks so much for joining us this Monday here on Ticker Today. I'm Aaron Young. Plenty more to come after the break. And of course, later on as well, Mike Loder will be with you with the very latest from Ticker Now. I'll see you soon. You're watching Ticker. We'll have more in just a few minutes.